I joke about it all the time because I, I I can't watch cartoons kiss. Like I'm so not a romantic person, but my husband is amazing. Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 16 of season five, and I'm so glad you tuned in today because today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Crystal Cottle. I talked to her last year, and she came back on the show to talk about her latest book, which comes out next Tuesday. So um, you don't want to miss that. But also, I want to draw your attention to a couple things that I talked about on my solo episode last week. So if you didn't catch that, make sure you go back and listen to it. But just to draw your attention to um, something quick that you can do if you are interested in what I write or in finding out more about what I write, um, you can go to my website, alisontreat.com, and sign up for my newsletter. Now, you can get to that sign up for... um, on Instagram or on Facebook or my website. So any place that you sign up, basically, you will get some samples of my writing and you'll also get some book recommendations. So if you're wondering, you know, Allison, you have all these authors on the show, but who, like, what books do you really, really love? Well, I offer you a list of my top five recent historical fiction reads. So you can get that by signing up for the newsletter. And then you can also get some samples of my writing that way too. This is something lots of authors do. And Crystal, in this interview, she's going to offer you a way to get a free novella. I think it's a prequel to her whole series. So we discussed that at the end of our interview. So don't miss that because her series is really great, exciting, romantic, um, despite her aversion to romance herself. Um, But without further ado, I would love you to listen to this wonderful conversation I had with Crystal Cottle. Crystal, thank you for joining me on the show again today. Thank you so much for having me. I love being here. So your latest novel, Counterfeit Faith, releases May 16th. Can you tell me about this book? Uh, Yes. Counterfeit Faith is the last book in my Hidden Hearts of the Gilded Age series, um, which is kind of bittersweet. Um, It focuses on Josiah, my little um, playboy kind of guy, but he's really not a playboy. So it's probably my most romantic story because Josiah is a flirt and I am not a romantic person, which made this story interesting to write. (laughs) Um, So he's flirtatious. um, But once he meets the matron of final chance house of uh, refuge, Gwendolyn Ellison, um, it's a war with himself not to fall hard and fall fast. Um, Gwendolyn Ellison has spent her entire life serving children the public has deemed delinquents, so like your initial juvenile delinquents. They were sent to Final Chance House of Refuge, and the children are supposed to be given a safe place to be reformed from their criminal pasts and given a second chance at life. However, someone's trying to hide the abuse occurring inside, and when she's trying to expose this abuse, they target her with threats to her life. 
Josiah is a widower and he gets pulled into Gwendolyn's troubles when he rescues her from a knife blade, but he soon discovers that it's more than abuse that's going on and someone is using the children for their counterfeiting operations. So as a secret service operative, he has the jurisdiction to step in and help rescue the children. And as he and Gwendolyn work together, they both fight against their growing affection for each other. And, um, they combat some elements of doubts with faith. Um, she's very faith filled and he's very doubtful of his faith. So they each work together for faith and saving those children. Yeah. So um, why do they fight so hard against their feelings for each other? So Josiah was a widower and he loved his first wife very much. So, mm-hmm. um, and they, she, she died before they celebrated their first anniversary. Oh, wow. So he feels like it's very much a betrayal to her to fall in love with anyone else. Mm-hmm. I know that he's had this history of being engaged to lots of women, but the truth is he just has a hard time telling women no <laughs> and they quarter him and he has a wealthy well-respected family and so they view him kind as a fortune hunt mm-hmm. so and he's just so bad about telling women no so that's how he's ended up in all these situations wow um and Gwendolyn has kind of lost her faith in people um her father walked away from them she's got some other challenges the men who are over the house of refuge are not very good people. Mm -hmm. She had a former fiance who left her when she found, he found out her father had a criminal history. So there's a lot of trust issues going on on her end. Yeah. Wow. So they both have um, lost their faith, one in God and one in people. So yeah. Um, so I had you on the show last spring and we talked about your debut novel, Counterfeit Love. Now, Counterfeit Faith, as you mentioned, it's the third novel in the series or the final one. Um, so you've had two novels released already this year. This seems like really fast. You've had three that books come out. Yeah. Um, do you feel like you've been thrown into this world of being an author? And what what has that been like? Yes, I have been thrown into the deep end. And (laughs) I am very thankful that God has sent the whale to swallow me and help me survive through this and that it's going to spit me out somewhere safe eventually. Yes. (laughs) I don't know if that illusion actually works, but that's what it feels like. Um, That makes sense. Yeah. It's been good. I love the connections with people I've made. There's a lot to the marketing aspect that is really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love these stories and these characters so much and the messages that each story holds that I'm willing to do it and I'll do it as many times as God wants me to. But it's definitely a walk of faith, even as I go through this publishing process. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. How are these three novels connected in the series. So each of the heroes in the books are secret service operatives way back in the day when they, their primary goal was to catch counterfeiters and protect the U S currency when it was still very wobbly (laughs) in Mm -hmm. people's trust of it. Um, By the 1880s, they were, they were pretty solid in there. 
yeah. trust of the U.S. currency, but they were still their primary objective was to get rid of counterfeiting. Right. The whole series pretty much revolves around the Secret Service. Yeah. But counterfeit faith is unique because there are some different circumstances in that novel. Can you tell us about the constraints that were placed on the Secret Service during that time? So during the time of Josiah's story, um, President Grover Cleveland, he had a new solicitor brought on. Mm -hmm. And the solicitor decided that Secret Service operatives buying counterfeit money from the counterfeiters incited them to incited the counterfeiters into committing a crime that they might not have otherwise, Hmm. which isn't how that works. Um, They were already actively involved in selling. I disagree with the solicitor and so did the secret service. Um, That was their primary way of earning the trust of the counterfeiters because you could take out some of the sellers, but you need to get all the way to the producers Mm -hmm. of the counterfeit money. And unless they could buy that money and earn the trust of those people, they couldn't get to the producers. Okay. There was also a unique factor with uh, this story in that I pulled in something called the Green Goods Game, which didn't usually fall under the Secret Service. It was a postal scam. So think about your email scams. It was a con to con other cons. Oh. <laughs> um, it was a lot of fun to dip my toes into that. It was highly publicized. But what happened was these counterfeiters would reach out to small businessmen who were more likely to buy counterfeit money to pass on to their customers. Um, And they would send a sample, quote unquote, through the mail of their work. They would send a real dollar bill saying, hey, look at how good our quality is. How much do you want to buy? And so these people who were willing to call on their customers would buy it through the mail and then, of course, get nothing in return. Um, But because they used real money, it usually fell under the post office's purview to prosecute. And Uh they rarely did because it's just a giant mess. And how many cons are going to come forward and say, I got conned (laughs) buying counterfeit money? Um, Yeah. So what I did is I actually had this particular green goods game use an actual counterfeit money. Mm. So an actual counterfeit sample. And so then it technically fell under secret service purview. So that's how I was able to link them in. Wow. This must have taken so much research to figure out exactly what was going on at that time with the counterfeiting and the secret service and everything. I'm such a research nerd. (laughs) I think we have to be to write historical fiction, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So um, your protagonist, Gwendolyn Ellison, you mentioned she's a matron for the house for a house of refuge. And can you explain more about what is a house of refuge and the history around them? Absolutely. So houses of refuges were um, actually the predecessor to our juvenile jail system. Mm. Um, And like any institution that is meant to serve the public, it can go down the paths that were not intended to take. And so there were public houses of refuge, um, state ran ones. And um, what happened is children were 
sent by a magistrate or judge to whichever house of refuge they were assigned. And they had to spend at least a year in these facilities. Mm -hmm. Um, There were lots of reasons that children would be brought in. Some of them very, very ridiculous. So if children were found on the street and charged with vagrancy, they were put into houses of refuge. But sometimes parents brought babies, infants who were just unmanageable and said that they needed to go to a house of refuge to be reformed and changed. Oh, wow. And so they would accept them. And it was just, it's heartbreaking. So you had female wards and you had male wards. And if there were families within the same house of refuge, they were separated. They didn't get to see each other. Mm. Um, They were given educations. They made things to support the houses of refuge that were sold out to the public. Um, But afterwards, when they reached their sentencing, which was a year minimum, but it could go longer. Um, they actually most often ended up in some sort of indentured servitude, um, mm. which you didn't think about being in existence back then. But what happened is if the parents were alive or could be reached, they had to get parental permission, which most gave because they didn't have a way to provide for their children. That's how they ended up in these situations. Wow. Um, So the houses of refuge would work with business people or farmers or other situations like that and arrange for room and board and training for whatever trade that they're being indentured in. And in some cases, not all cases, but a lot of cases, the house of refuge would receive a small stipend for that work. Mm -hmm. Um, And the kids would age out between 18 and 21, depending where you were at, um, depending what the things, the situation was. And so it was just, it was really fascinating and heartbreaking to read. Yeah. Um, But I was happy to be able to bring something most people don't know to the forefront. Right. And another thing I don't know a lot about um, is the 19th century opiate epidemic, which I think that played into this novel also. It did. Can you tell us more about that? Um, So Gwendolyn's father was a hero in his own right. Um, He had been a firefighter and unfortunately had been very badly injured and ended up taking opiates and becoming addicted. And this Mm. was extremely common. Roughly one in 200 Americans were addicted to opiates. And actually most of them were women because they would prescribe opiates for um, anything from menstrual cramps to just feeling blah. Oh my goodness. Um, It was, it wasn't regulated in any form or fashion. You could go and get it over the counter. It was in a lot of drugs. It was in a lot of, it was just such an easily accessible thing that it wasn't until the late 19th century that they realized they had a problem and they had to address it. So that's, I kind of brought all that in together just because it, it fit the story so well. And it's just another one of those things that I like to bring to the forefront. It's one of those taboo topics that I think people need to know about because her father wasn't a bad man. But he still ended up hooked up on opiate. Right, sure. That's so interesting. And also that it coincided with, um, or it took place during the Gilded Age. I wonder how much of that is related because you have a lot of, um, 
you know, well-to-do people, did they have better access to the drugs that contained opiates? It was so everywhere that every class level could get to it easily. It wasn't wow. like it was a restricted thing. Okay. Like I could walk in and get Tylenol from anywhere. You could walk in there and get opiates from anywhere. Yeah. Okay. So you were your first two novels. One was set in Cincinnati. The second one was that rural Indiana, I think. It was. And so why did you decide to set this novel in Philadelphia? A um, couple different reasons. So I have a little novella that kind of goes with the series that newsletter subscribers can get for free or you can purchase it on Amazon. But mm-hmm. I, I started that as the place that Broderick, my first hero, and Josiah had been stationed at. Um, and so you got to see them there. And I'd also made references in book one that that's where Josiah and Broderick had come from. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had to bring it back that way. Okay. Um, and it also helped because it's also a very political area and Josiah's family is into the politics and things like that. Okay. Yeah. And it was also a great, um, these are set during the Gilded Age, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And so Philadelphia and New York were two really great Gilded Age cities, if you want to see that kind of. Oh, it's so much research fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I understand you got to visit Philadelphia when you were. It has been on my bucket list forever. (laughs) And I finally got to go. Yay. I'm, I live like two and a half hours north of Philly. So I've been there a few times. So I bet it was exciting though, to go for the first time. It was, it was a very, very whirlwind trip. Um, Mm. I was there less than 24 or right around 24 hours. Um, wow. <laughs> um, my husband was doing a business trip and I got to tag along and a friend joined me to walk through Philadelphia because otherwise I was going to be by myself. Oh, um, yeah. I'm a country girl, not country country, but walking around in cities by myself, I'm not comfortable with. Um, yeah. So I had a friend with me and I got to see some of my bucket list items. I didn't get to see all of them. We did a bus tour so I could get at least an overview. Um, but the majority of my time was actually spent at si- the city hall building. Okay. Um, Cause that plays, that's where the secret service op- offices were. And I wanted to make sure I got all the details correct. Mm-hmm. I got to have a tour of the inside and that was so cool. Neat. Yeah, that's great. So do you feel that writing this book in particular changed your view of history at all? Definitely. There's just so much depth to this story that I never imagined running into. I I knew that people would go to the prisons and the houses of refuge, chosen insane asylums as kind of like entertainment, Mm. but to see just exactly what they were going and seeing and just, Oh, wow. It was just heartbreaking to see that part of the world um, and to see history from a different perspective that I hadn't really thought of. Yeah. Um, The Gilded Age is really known for a lot of social changes that occurred and were kind of being pressed up against. And so it was neat to see, how those changes came about and how they didn't exactly get executed the way they hoped. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. It's heartbreaking, but enlightening because you can see parallels to today. Right. Sure. So what lessons or themes come out in this novel? 
the spiritual arc in general is that your doubts don't define your faith. Faith can redefine your doubt. It's allowed, you're allowed to have doubts with God. And he encourages you to bring them to him Mm -hmm. um, and challenges them and wants you to grow through them and learn to trust him through them. Um, And it's also the theme that people aren't, not all people are bad. There are people out there you can trust. We can all work together to make the place, the world a better place. Even if it isn't exactly perfectly executed, we're making steps in the right direction. Um, Those two things really hit me big as I wrote the story and kind of feel like that came out pretty strong in the story. Yeah, great. Um, So what are you working on next? Can you tell us about that? So in September, I have three books releasing this year. Um, (laughs) That's a lot. That would be a lot for me. (laughs) It's a lot for anyone. Um, But I am in a Christmas novella collection with Kara Putnam and Angela Ruth Strong. Mm -hmm. And it's called We Three Kings. And it focuses on three, um, a family of moguls, which are just essentially really, really rich people. Um, Right. (laughs) (laughs) um, And my story actually has Josiah in it because of the timing. So Counterfeit Faith was supposed to release in February of 2024. So the novella actually takes place before Counterfeit Faith. So if you were trying to read it in order... I would sneak the novella in before counterfeit faith. Um, but it's actually more about his sister, even though you get to see Josiah. Oh, um, cool. So it's a fun story. You have uh, Aldrich Wise, who is a German immigrant, but like he's, his family's established and they own an ocean liner, basically. So it's like the predecessor to the Titanic. So you get oh, to wow. experience basically a titanic ride across the ocean so, oh, neat. with christmas and romance and a little bit of suspense thrown in there yeah and it's interesting you mentioned that you are not a romantic person and yet you write historical romance how does that work <laughs> um i joke about it all the time because i i I can't watch cartoons kiss. Like I'm so not a romantic person, but my husband is amazing. Oh, he is my inspiration for romance. And, um, and I guess really what it boils down to is God's story for us is a romance story. And so I get to kind of share in a piece of that by writing romance that reflects him and his love for us. Yeah. And all your stories have the faith element. It's very, clear. And I, I love that about them. And I can't wait to read this book now because it just, it sounds so interesting and like, it's a fun romance. So. It is a lot of fun. Um, he made me blush a lot. Josiah bless his heart. <laughs> oh, that's funny. If you make yeah. the author blush, that's, that's good. <laughs> I promise I don't go very far with him, but it's still more uncomfortable for me. <laughs> and I think he enjoyed it because characters come alive in your head. Yes. They, they become their own people. Right. Oh, that's very true. 
So this is the last question I have for you. It's kind of a fun question. If you could choose to live in any time of history other than right now, in what time period would you choose to live? I honestly would want to live in the Gilded Age. Yeah. There was so much change and just so many amazing dynamics that I would love to kind of delve into. I don't know that I would be brave enough to stand up for some of the social things that they did Mm. and the ways they did it, but to watch that unfold. And I mean, if I could have the awareness that this is such a big and amazing thing, that would be, I would really love to just kind of witness that piece of history. Yeah. And I love that time period for all the reasons you mentioned, but also because I I think that, you know, there were some maybe hygienic practices that had taken place. They had, they had Mm -hmm. some medicine available. (laughs) So you're starting in on being able to take care of certain things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) I did. And I don't know if you'll include this or not, but in some of my research, I I had to research how sanitation was done in cities. Oh, wow. And so they actually had vaults, like bathroom vaults in the alleyways that Mm -hmm. the nightmen would come and clean out. Oh, my goodness. Like, you never know where research is going to (laughs) take you. (laughs) You find out all kinds of things. Yeah. That is crazy. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What a job to have. (laughs) Yeah, I would not want to have that job. And they were called nightmen because they did their jobs at night because nobody wanted to see or smell it. Right. At least, I mean, at least they were to that point where they didn't want to see or smell it anymore. You go back a few hundred years and that was what you were dealing with it, right in the streets, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Yeah. So on that note... Crystal, this has been a wonderful conversation as usual. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? And also, how can they, you mentioned they could buy the prequel novella um, for the whole series, but they can also get it by signing up for your newsletter list. Is that right? Yes. Um, So it's called Counterfeit Truth. And if you actually go to bit.ly slash counterfeit truth with your key, your C and your T capitalized. Mm-hmm. It'll take you to the preview of the book and it will take you to the sign up for my newsletter where you can get it all three, all free. Um, nice. And my website, crystalcoddle.com is probably the best way to initially contact with me. I hang out on Facebook at crystal coddle author. Mm-hmm. That's probably where you're going to find me the best is my newsletter. Yeah. Facebook and my website. And right. My email, always feel free to email me at any time at crystal at crystalcoddle.com. Yeah. And I love your, your newsletter. You always, um, you like pray for the people on your newsletter list and you have such a ministry of prayer. It's great. I, I do literally pray over every name before each letter goes out. Sometimes I mess up and I pray after the letter's gone out, but every name does get prayed for. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to catch up. Yes. 
Well, friends, isn't Crystal just a sweetheart? I love her. It's always fun to have her on the show. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I hope you check out her books. As always, go to the show notes to get links to Crystal's books and to other um, things of interest, including a link to my newsletter list. And also, um, I just want to encourage you to support the show by um, following it or is subscribing to it, whatever your app allows you to do, and also leaving a star rating and review, especially on Apple Podcasts, that really helps other listeners find this show. Um, and we want as many lovers of historical fiction to listen to the show as possible. Now, if you listened to my solo episode, you know that next week is the last week of the season, the last episode of the season. So, um, I'm going to take a summer break and we'll be back in the fall even stronger, but you don't want to miss next week's episode because it's going to be the first time I interview two authors at once. And I'm so excited. It was really a fun interview to do and you're going to enjoy that too. So don't miss that. But today I'm going to leave you with some words from Sydney J. Harris. Men make counterfeit money. In many more cases, money makes counterfeit men. So chew on that thought for a little while, my friends, and continue reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week.